First Corinthians chapter 15. We want to look today at the restoration of all things. We kind of began uh, a look at this last week, and I tried to kind of put it all together. We read through it, and hopefully a natural way, just what seemed to be the most uh, common sense way, the common sense way to take it. And I kind of shared with you uh, my, the way I understand that. Um, just by way of a review, we saw that Paul continued to reveal consequences to us. If there is no resurrection, that, that really kind of continues uh, really to, through today's uh, passage. Uh, the things we looked at last week, though, we are still in our sins if there's no resurrection. Our loved ones are not in heaven, so that's certainly not a good thing. Uh, he ends up by saying we're misguided fools to give up what Christians must give up. I mean, why was Christ telling you to take up your cross and follow me, which is an instrument of death? Why did he tell the rich young ruler to uh, sell all that he has? For what purpose? If there's no life after death and no resurrection. And then we uh, also looked at uh, really the, the, the crux of the gospel. In Adam all are condemned. And all in Christ are justified. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit more today, that Christ being the second Adam. All those who are uh, united to Adam, and that would be everybody, because we all came from Adam physically, his sin is our sin. And we are seen as having committed that sin. It's what called original sin is. And so... In a very similar way, all those who have been united to Christ spiritually, his work then becomes our work. So just as Adam's sin is our sin, so Christ's act of righteousness, we are seen as, as being righteous and having obeyed in Christ Jesus. And that's really the heart of the gospel. That's how God can forgive our sins. And so we'll uh, pick up a little bit of that again today as we move forward. Uh, also, the res- we saw the resurrection comes when Christ comes back. This is kind of kind of transition us into today. At the resurrection, that that happens when Christ comes back, and that it is said to be the end when Christ comes back and gives us our glorified bodies. And Paul says that is the end. Then the messianic kingdom is complete. Sin and death are vanquished. And we enter into the eternal state. So Paul has made the argument that Christ has been raised from the dead. And necessarily then we will be as well. And he's also given us several reasons why this matters. And now he gives some details as to what will be happening. And some of the circumstances around this general resurrection that happens when Christ comes back. And he begins this in verse 23, where he says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. We saw how that is a fulfillment of the of really of the Old Testament law, which was a prophecy. But God gave that law in part to speak about what was going to happen when Christ died and was raised again, that that is the a promise of a future resurrection, more to follow uh, when all saints are received, they're, uh, are raised again. And so the natural reading assumes that this is the next thing to happen. I mean, I don't see how anybody can really read through this and 
not see that in Paul's mind, that's what we're waiting for. And then we read First Thessalonians 4, where Paul says that the next thing to take place is that trumpet sound, what will take place, uh, uh, that shout of the archangel and the dead, and Christ shall raise first, and we will follow. That's that's what's that's the next thing to happen. And so in verse twenty-four, he says, "Then comes the end." That's what happens next. Now, some say that the second coming is not the end, but that Paul is merely referring to something that happens at some point after the second coming. In fact, if you are dispensational, you would say that what Paul is talking about here is not the second coming, but the rapture that takes place seven years before the second coming. So Christ is coming back, but he doesn't come all the way back to the earth. We're caught up. So that's not really the second coming. That's that's going to happen later when Christ comes to earth. But again, as you read that, uh, you're saying, well, if that's the case, Paul has left out an awful lot of things. Instead, as we saw in Revelation, I think pretty clearly, Christ will come with the disembodied saints. They will receive their bodies at that time. We will be caught up with them as we receive our bodies. And then, of course, that we, we, we come with Christ when he comes to judge the earth. That it's all taking place at the, at the very same time. There's nothing here or anywhere else that I can see in Scripture that would require us to see it as anything other what Paul is talking about as Christ coming back to get us, destroy all the enemies in the final judgment, and then we will, it, we will uh, enter into the restoration of all things. In other words, once he comes and he judges the, uh, uh, the, the lost, cast them into hell, we are, uh, have our glorified bodies, the earth will melt away with a fervent heat, and he will create a new heavens and a new earth. He will do all that in what we call the day of Jesus Christ, the day of his return. Of course, by, at that point, time will end, but that, that it's going to happen at that time. And that has, I think, been primarily the position uh, throughout the, the uh, a, 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 that, a, that is a position that has uh, can trace its way back all the way back to Christ. Now there are other positions uh, also, but that is a old position as opposed to uh, dispensationalism, which was never heard of before 18, the 1820s, as I said before. One thing this passage does is that it makes it clear that there is a grand design. So let's just step back for a moment and say, okay, well, no matter how you want to look at some of this, what the passage clearly does is to let us remind us that there's a grand design to Earth's history. Everything is working toward a central end, or certain end, excuse me, and life is not just some grand experiment that God is just seeing what man is going to do with Earth. But God is working everything to a desired end where God will receive, as we'll see here in a moment, more glory than he was receiving before he created man. There's a purpose. This is a way in which God is glorifying himself by creating man and letting things transpire the way they have. Christ's final act will be to conquer every enemy 
so that he hands over to the Father a people redeemed and having vanquished all others to outer darkness. Uh, there, therefore, is no, once we receive our glorified bodies, there will be no more death. So death, sin and death will be vanquished at that time. And this is the fulfillment of what we might call the eternal covenant. The purposes for which God created mankind. When did eternity pass? It was the purpose of the Godhead to create a world, to create man, to let some, to let him fall into sin, and to, and, and as Christ was, was purposed to redeem the elect, because we were elected unto salvation before the world began, right? So all this is playing out the eternal purposes of God to uh, create a people who have been saved uh, by grace through Jesus Christ to condemn the rest that God might be glorified. This is the purpose of all things, and that's what Paul is referring to here. This is one reason why I don't believe in aliens, just to kind of not completely change the subject, but uh, you know that's kind of a little hot topic today. We've got government officials running around telling us that there's ain't, there's aliens and a big cover up. That's not to say I don't believe in, in angels and demons, and that some things people see that can't be explained very well could be attributed to that. But God did not create a universe with a bunch of different worlds, a bunch of different humanities uh, in life. Uh, he created this world to demonstrate uh, his uh, grace and mercy and, and justice and, and holiness through the salvation of sinners. And that's why it is earth that is at the center of our universe. And, and that earth is positioned uniquely, interestingly enough, in a position where we can see the universe, where a, in a lot of places we would not be able to see what we do. Earth is, you know, it's like God put, it, put us right here to be able to best see his creation. But we're, we're here, the earth is here for, for that purpose. We're not just one of many. Now it's interesting too. I was you know, talking to Mark Webb last week, and uh, some some of you were with me when, when we, we talked about this. He uh, has been kind of dealing with some of this stuff that's kind of interesting. But it turns out there's three stages to alien encounters that we've seen over the last say hundred years. And if you think about this, you say, oh yeah, it's true. Back in the 40s and 50s, you know, and all this kind of became a thing. Yeah, because space travel really wasn't even considered a thing, really, that much until this last century or so, right? That the purpose of aliens would come to make contact. Right? They would come, take me to your leader. Right? That was kind of the, the, the thing. Well, at some point in the 60s, 70s, whatever, it, it kind of changed. So now when aliens came, it was to take us back into the spaceship to probe us, right? To experiment on us. Interestingly, today, all of a sudden, when people talk about aliens, it's to warn us that we're destroying the earth. Interesting, there seems to be an agenda. And, and I saw some uh, goofball on TV who was talking, I don't, know, I don't really know the details. He's, he's talking about how the aliens have, are telling us we only have a few years to take care of the planet or all is lost. And I'm thinking, these are the people that are running the show. But, 
you know, that's it. But no, that's that's not to get too sidetracked, but that's why I don't believe in aliens. We're here to glorify the Lord, and we are alone in that sense. And and I, you know, don't I feel confident enough to say that from the pulpit? Let's put it that way. Anyway, in verse twenty-four is then is not where revelation takes place afterward, because again, that would mean this is not really the end. When when Paul says then the end comes, he doesn't mean and now. Everything that we read about in Revelation, the seven-year tribulation and all the, the things going on there, uh, there's a thousand and seven years left, and then another end. No, there's either one end or there's not. We either, I think, I think it's in this, uh, I think it's in this passage here, right? Um, it's funny that I hit. Um, anyway. I thought it was in chapter 15, but anyway, maybe some of you can tell me where it's at. Where Paul says, upon us the end of the ages have come. I think, is it not here in this passage? I'm just, you know, I don't take time to look for it, but, uh, either we're in the, the last age or we're not. And then I don't know what Paul's talking about if, if we're not in the end of the ages, right? So, just let the Bible speak for itself. It seems to make the most sense. And so in verse 25 then, for he must reign, present tense. So, so in, in other words, he's reigning now. This is what we're headed for in verse 24, but for now he must reign until he puts all those enemies under his feet, which would be sin and death and all those in re- rebellion against him. That last enemy, verse 26, is to, to be destroyed is death. And then he, says something very interesting where he says for, it's like he keeps explaining what he just said for God has put all things in subjection under his feet to, to, to do that, you know, why, you know, what's the purpose to do what he just said there in verses 24 and 25 Is it 10, 11? Okay, excuse me. I was, for some reason, I was thinking it was in chapter 15. That's what part why I couldn't find it here, though. But anyway, so, uh, what, what you've got here then is that Christ is now gathering out a kingdom of redeemed people, the church, and that when at the end of the age, he will present us to Christ. That's the purpose of the age that we live in. That, that's the end. That's, that's what, that's what all that was going on in the Old Testament was to get us to Christ coming and, and redeeming a people. And when, and when he comes back, all those people, both Old and New Testament, will be given to the Father, this kingdom, that, this mediatorial kingdom. Which I know, I think I said in my, uh, uh, in, in, in my review, it's a mediatorial kingdom that we live in now. It, it, and by that I mean not the, not the, Kingdom that God just rules over creation, that's never referred to as a kingdom in the Bible that I'm aware of. And, and there's a lot of confusion here because there are people who believe that, well, the kingdom is God's ruling over the earth, both lost at the church and the lost. Well, God does rule over the earth. He does rule over all mankind. That's always happened. That, that's never changed. It's never not been that way. 
Lord, but the kingdom that Paul is talking about here is the kingdom promised in the Old Testament when Christ would come and begin an everlasting kingdom, which is to redeem people. Remember, Jesus says the kingdom is not here or there. The kingdom is within you. And, and there's never any hint in the New Testament or the Old Testament, as far as that goes, of, of more than one kingdom. There's just the kingdom that, we're, that the Old Testament things look forward to was when the, when the Messiah would come and he would re, redeem people. And yes, eventually he would uh, have a new heavens and a new earth. There, there's no doubt about that. But there's not two kings, and I'll show you in a minute here how that how some people kind of work that out. One dispensational commentator said that in verse 24, it is the Lord reigning in the thousand-year millennium. But it says that at the end, then comes the end, when he comes back and he delivers the kingdom to the Father. So this would make no sense if a verse 25, where the kingdom is described as something that he is doing now. For he must reign. So if his if his, if the kingdom now is the messianic kingdom promised in the Old Testament, it is to redeem a people for the Lord. Which again is the purpose of, of the earth to begin with. To demonstrate God's glory in the redemption of some and in the uh, judgment of others. And so in verse 26, he will expand on this a little bit later, but he says here, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And again, the latter part of this chapter, he'll get more into that. But uh, this is one of the most practical benefits of the subject of the resurrection. Death, both physical and spiritual, is the worst consequence of sin, right? Because we die physically, but even worse, we uh, sin has separated us from God. So Physical death is not annihilation. Always keep that in mind because this confuses many, many people. Like the Muslims, for instance, say, well, you're saying that, that God died on the cross, that God can't die. Well, no, first of all, let, let's not make up uh, definitions for death. Death is not annihilation. It's not the cessation of being. Death, physical death is a separation from your body. Your soul is separated from your body. Spiritual death, then, again, is not annihilation. It is to be separated from the source of life, God himself, forever in hell. You're separated from God. Those are the only two kinds of death that there are. And so, again, that that helps, I think, keep certain things in perspective. Some say that this won't happen... uh, this victory over death will not happen until the end of the millennial reign. And so they understand this to be a process. I kind of talked about that a little bit last week, that you've got uh, you know, people dying during the millennium. Well, are they resurrected right then, or do they have to wait and then be resurrected on their own at the end, end of the millennium? Uh, it just kind of confuses the problem. I wanted to read something to you from John MacArthur in his commentary that I thought was interesting. And again, I, I always like to make the disclaimer that uh, I love John MacArthur, and uh, it wasn't for the fact that he uh, has a problem in this area. I, I, you know, he, other than that, I, you know, I love him. So anyway, it's not to be critical, but I think it shows the, the problems here. He's trying to explain these verses, verses 24 through 25, about 
how to rectify what Christ did when he came the first time and what he's going to do when he comes the second time. And what I've been saying is that when Christ came the first time, he set up the kingdom that will, that will last forever. He, be, he began to do this work. The dispensation said, well, he came the first time not to set up a kingdom, but to redeem mankind, the kingdoms later. Alright, so here's what he says. The last enemy, both of God and man, is death, which will, which with all other enemies will be abolished. Christ broke the power of Satan, him who had the power of death at the cross. But Satan and death will not permanently be abolished. But Satan and death will not be permanently abolished until the end of the millennium. Now, I would say, okay, that we're in the millennium, and therefore, I agree with him that Christ came to begin the work, right? He's saying that really that's kind of been not really started yet, and that it's, it's something he'll do at the end of, of the millennium instead of the end of this age. He says the victory was won at Calvary, but the eternal peace and righteousness that the victory guarantees will not be consummated and completed until the enemies who were conquered are also banished and, ab- and abolished. And, and I would agree, just not with the tiny, but I would agree. He, he sealed sin and Satan's uh, destiny, you might say, in, in judgment at the cross. But obviously Satan is still the prince of the power of the air. He, he, he has allowed some freedom. But his, his days are numbered, right? And so then he says, Then his final work, having been accomplished, Christ delivers up the kingdom to the God the Father. So he says that's going to happen at the end of the millennial age. Now listen to this, because this is where it's, you see the difference here. It's kind of interesting. At least I think it is. When he, when he took the assignment of salvation from the Father, and I've already talked a little bit about that, right, in the eternal covenant, Christ came to earth as a baby, and lived and grew up as a man among men. He taught, preached, healed, and did miraculous works. He died, was buried, was raised, ascended to his father, and there he now intercedes for those who are his. Period. And I thought, that this is where it's interesting. So he's saying is that Christ at his first work did, the, did his work of redemption and now he ascended, and his work now is intercession. All right, well, that's true. But Peter very clearly in Acts 2 says that Christ has ascended and sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ reigns. He's, king. he's, he's the king. But notice here, he says he ends with uh, intercession, and then he says when he returns, he will fight, conquer, rule, judge, and then as his last work on the Father's behalf, forever subdue and finally judge all the enemies of God. I'm saying, wait just a minute, why can't he be doing that now? Why is that something he's not doing now? I think Christ is reigning now. I think that he is fighting, conquering, ruling, judging. He's doing all that work now as people die, as he gathers the church. But see, so I thought that, that kind of illustrates the difference here. There's a lot of other things you can deal with, but Instead, of, I, I think Paul has, has made it very clear, if you read through this and other texts, that Christ came and the, the, the kingdom began at Pentecost. And that it will be consummated in the eternal state. Christ did not come and then 
go back and all he's doing is interceding. No, he's reigning now. And he's putting down his enemies now, and that will be consummated at his second return. So that would be, I think, a, a pretty obvious difference between a more amillennial position and a premillennial uh, dispensational position. So I thought that was kind of interesting anyway, and I hope you found that at least uh, beneficial to some degree. One point he's making here, going back to Paul, is that there, if there is no resurrection, then who is he going to hand over to the Father? In other words, no matter what your position is, one of Paul's points is that uh, without a resurrection, what in the world is Christ doing? Who's he going to hand over to the Father, right? And even the dispensationalists admit that without a resurrected people, there would be nothing to hand over. Uh, you can say, well, the glorified earth, but what is, who cares? You know, what's that got to do with anything? It's the, it's the redeemed people that we're talking about here. And so a physical kingdom isn't the point. It, it's that, it's that spiritual kingdom, the church. So then, why can't we understand the kingdom to be spiritual, as, as Christ said, within you? And if that's what's being handed over, not, not the earth, because the earth is the Lord's and the God has always, God has always, uh, ruled the earth. What does the Old Testament say? None can stay his hand. Yes, there's rebellion, but, but they're only doing what God allows. He's always reigned. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom promised in the Old Testament is the redemption of the church. <clears throat> and so the earth and universe, I think, is implicit. But the subject here is the resurrected, th- those who are resurrected, us, right? That's, that's the whole point. And so verses 24 through 26 is speaking of the kingdom of the redeemed, not just the physical realm. <clears throat> he's going to destroy the earth, not hand it over. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Once his church is complete, he will destroy the earthly kingdom to create a sinless earth. And again, this is important because there are some out there today who struggle talking about the kingdom. They, they think that the kingdom is the church and the world. And I think that just creates a lot of problems. Uh, the, the, as I said, the, 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 uh, God's re- rule over the earth is never referred to as a kingdom. It's just God uh, doing, you know, being God. And so in verse 27, it says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that's an interesting, he actually, he's actually quoting from Psalm 8. And if you read back that, you know, Psalm 8, really it's a, it, originally this is a reference to Adam, to mankind. He has put this earth, creation, under the, the reign of man. Right? And what did Adam, what did the first Adam do? As I said, kind of going back to the first Adam, second Adam uh, motif. The first Adam, uh, did not rule the earth well. He fell into sin. And so, this is, looks, looks forward to what happened when Christ was resurrected, uh, he has put all things, again, he has put all things under the, the subjection of the second Adam to undo what the first Adam did. So now Christ rules all things as he begins to put things right. In, in first of all, getting rid of sin is he redeems the church. And that's, so, so verse 27 is kind of interesting in that sense. Because it is, a, I think, a first reference to uh, Adam, but 
really, of course, it looks forward to Christ. Verse 27 is a statement that the Lord has a kingdom now because all things are under his rule for the purpose. It's that God has put, which is in Greek, the perfect passive tense. It has been done. Paul does not say this is something that will take place. Paul says this is something in his day that God has done, given to the Son. It's a something that is happening now. But then it goes on to say, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that is the Father, is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, at the end, you know, whenever the Son is done doing this work, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, that's, that's a wordy way of saying all that, but, it, but it's interesting. God will be all in all in glory, uh, in, in eternal glory. Uh, God has always been all glorious to the, 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 the Trinity, right? And what, what Paul is saying here is that uh, in, in eternity past, the Godhead decided to do this work to receive more glory to, to, as a way to glorify himself, right? And so once Christ has done this work, Again, I think when he comes back and it's all done, he's going to hand this kingdom, again, not the earth, not the, not the world, not the lost, but this kingdom that those whom he has redeemed to the Father. And then continue, uh, eternity shall continue. God will be all in all. Eternity shall continue, but there's going to be a little, it's not going to be the same as it used to be. God will be just as glorious because God never changes. But in eternity, two things were missing that, that we'll have in eternity present. First of all, Jesus Christ will have a physical body. That's kind of the whole point here. One of the points, right? So in eternity future, there will be, the Son will still be there, but he'll now be in the form of Jesus with the body. And then secondly, there's going to be a multitude of redeemed that were never, it was never in eternity. And, and so things have changed a little bit. So it's a very interesting uh, thing to think about. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected. So that the Godhead will kind of return to its original glory. And, and having done this work, things will kind of get back to the way it was. But but it, but not entirely. It'll, it'll be a little bit better, I guess. It would be a way to say it. Because God did this for a purpose. <clears throat> So the kingdom of the Bible, the one that Christ sets up and rules forever, is not the same thing as the eternal rule of God over all things that has been, because that has always been and will never cease to be. But at some point when God created this world, he established a kingdom of Israel. Right? That's, just that, that's separate kingdom from God ruled in Israel, but he, always, he still continued to rule the universe, right? And then he promises there will be another kingdom coming when the Messiah comes and sets up that kingdom. But that's going to be separate. That, 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 that's separate from what God always does as, as God, right? It's, it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a redemptive kingdom. And so his rule in the Old Testament with Israel is not the kingdom that he set up at Pentecost. 
I think that helps us understand the relationship of the covenants and the kingdoms, and that there's always been just those two kingdoms that God created on earth uh, in, in the biblical uh, narrative. There's not a third kingdom out there that, that, that we're looking for. We don't need it. All right, so that's how I understand through verse 27, or uh, uh, 28. Now we come back down to earth a little bit, um, and as, as Paul kind of does, he seems to have gotten caught up in just the glory of what is to come. And in verse 29, as he continues his arguments about the resurrection, he says something that kind of brings theologians to a complete another. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And we're thinking, what? Where did this come from, right? And it's an interesting work. And there's probably no, you know, most commentators say that's one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to really be confident in of what, what's going on here. But it's always important when we come to a verse that is difficult to remember, okay, what's the context? What's Paul's point? And that will help us understand what it's not saying. So, we, so even if we don't fully understand perhaps what Paul's point is or, or what, it, what it does say, at least we know what it is not saying. First of all, it can't be any clearer that Paul is not is stating that the dead still exist at this time. So whatever being baptized on their behalf means, Paul's point is that they're, they're, they still exist. In other words, why, he said, why would you be baptized for something someone that doesn't exist, that's not raised, if this is not true? So that's his point. So we don't have to get too sidetracked and bogged down in the question of why are they baptized on behalf? What does that do? We want to first make sure we at least get the point, right? Because that's what he's doing. He's getting, in verse 29, he's getting back to what he's been talking about. Now, not understanding what this baptism means can't cause us to miss the point that the dead are alive somewhere and have not been annihilated. Otherwise, this wouldn't make any sense. Next, there are so many clear texts that teach that there are no second chances after death that we have no excuse to understand this in a way that somehow gets people who have died into heaven. That just would contradict so much of the Bible that it would create more problems than it's worth. Baptism doesn't save to begin with. So, to be baptized for someone who's dead wouldn't help them any more than it would help them when they're alive. That that would just have to be a given. Beyond that, if it were possible to be saved by baptism, and even more so to save someone else by being baptized on their behalf, it seems like we would find at least some place in the scripture where this is teased out. Paul mentions this in passing. So to make a doctrine of salvation out of it would would be awful exegesis. <clears throat> I can take you to any number of places where salvation through faith alone saves, but never one where plunging someone underneath water forgives sins. And so this error only works if you believe that the church can 
somehow receive special revelation outside of the Bible that supplants and sometimes contradicts it, as the Catholics do. In other words, if this is how telling us that you can be baptized for someone who's died so they go to heaven, then that information was, was not given to us, but that uh, it came later. Some, at some point outside of the Bible, which the Catholics say happens all the time, and so that's why they could have Mariolatry and all that, because it, it doesn't have to be found in Scripture in their mind. And, and I reject all that out of hand, so I don't have to worry about it. <clears throat> Next, there is no passage in the Bible which indicates that Christians should be baptized for the dead. It's never commanded. We never see it practiced in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament, if this is a unique occurrence in Scripture. So again, we, you have to interpret it in light of that. Secondly, we would be foolish to build a doctrine on one obscure reference when it's not clear who's being baptized, who they're being baptized for, or what the purpose is. Paul doesn't talk about that. So again, remember Peter's words, you say that there are some who take Paul's difficult writings, and they twist them, right? And, and this would probably be an example of that. It's interesting that early on it was recognized that this did not teach being baptized for the dead in the saving way. That Early on, they, that was recognized to be an error. Tertullian, who lived in the latter part of the second century, spoke about this. Marcion, who I believe lived in that same time period, was recognized as a heretic for teaching just that, that, that they were being baptized for their salvation. And that was recognized as heresy early on. So, we understand what it's not teaching, even if we wish that we had a little bit more light in all this, right? Well, let me kind of hasten on here. I don't want to get too bogged down on this. But it's, it's an interesting passage for, for, for sure. And I would say that I guess there's about 30 different interpretations that people have put forth for this, and, and most of them can be immediately rejected. Uh, some, including Tertullian, for instance, said that um, they were being baptized for those who didn't get a, a, another chance to be baptized, who didn't get a chance to be baptized when they were alive. And, and I could see that makes sense. Uh, I don't think it makes biblical sense that it has to be done. But, in other words, you're saying, you know, to them, to the early church, as it should be, baptism was equated with salvation. Not that you that it saved you, but that if you were saved, you were baptized. And if you weren't baptized, you weren't considered to be saved. Because anyone who had not openly professed Christ as Savior uh, and identified with Him, well, they, they weren't considered to be saved. Your, your profession isn't taken seriously. So if someone died before they could be baptized, you could see where they said, well, I want to be baptized on their behalf. Because this is something that Christians do. And and, and so I, I wouldn't, I could see that have, taking place for sure. Probably what makes the most sense in light of Paul's argument here is that uh, there are some, for instance, who say, well, he's saying you're being baptized unto the fact that you are going to die. In other words, you're being baptized in light of the future, uh, which is death. I think that's not in the original. As you look at the language here, it's probably hard to justify that interpretation. But I think there's it's, it's getting in the right track. In other words, I, 
what seems to be going on here is that Paul is saying that because there is a resurrection, because this death doesn't end all things, that we are being baptized for something that that lies in the future. And that's certainly true, right? In other words, I I, I am baptized because I believe that I am going to be raised, that I have been raised spiritually with Christ and I will be raised physically. I'm being baptized in light of death. And there, there's some who say that's probably what Paul is talking about. And, and I would say that that certainly makes sense, even though he seems to make that argument in the verses that follow, that at least I think is, is clearly his point. And we'll kind of leave it at that because you can kind of study this on and on with it, and I don't think you ever arrive at anything that you could say, I'm sure this is what it means. But but I think the uh, it's obvious that that's his point. And notice what he says in verse 30. <clears throat> Why are we in danger every hour? So it's the same thing, you know, this idea. Why am I uh, risking what I'm risking if I don't have anything to look forward to? He says, I protest, brothers. By my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die every day. It's the same thing. He he knows enough, as Christ has taught us, to die daily, to give up this world, to give up pleasure, to give up physical safety. And he says, why am I doing that if there's no resurrection? What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, whether he did or not, he certainly, there are many who did that, who were giving up their lives in that way, who were being martyred if the dead are not raised. So, as you take verse 30 all the way through that, or verse 29 all the way through, you see that's his argument, even if we're not exactly sure what the baptism thing is all about. And so, to de- deny the doctrine of the resurrection strikes at the very heart of all the other doctrines of holiness, of taking up your cross and following Christ, of sanctification. Why are we doing any of that if there's no judgment, if we're not going to be raised to meet the Lord? <clears throat> Paul says, you guys, you're saying I'm an idiot. If you, if, if, you, if you think about this, if you're saying there's no resurrection, you're making me out to be a fool. And it makes perfect sense. I'm making myself an outcast to this world. I'm making them... Uh, they're whipping. I'm becoming their whipping boy, but for what? Because if there's no resurrection, hedonism is really the only thing to do. That's the only thing that makes consistent sense, to live for the moment, to live for the pleasure now. But as, as we've talked about before, that just really leads to emptiness because we were not created to live selfishly like that. And that's why those who live only to please the, 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 the flesh might look happy, they might have a lot of toys, and might have a lot of pleasure, but inside they're empty because they're living contrary to the way we were created. We were created to, to sacrifice, to love, to help, to, to, to think of others. Of course, God, God being first. And when we don't live that way, you're trying to find happiness in a way that will not work. So all such hedonism will leave one ruined. You might live well for a while, but you're going to die and have nothing, right? And that's the whole question. We close with this. You know, Solomon asked back in Ecclesiastes, he said, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity. You know, he said, what's life all about? 
All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil in which he falls under the sun? That is the best you can do apart from a resurrection. If there's no resurrection, that's it. There's no purpose in anything. His answer at the end of the book in chapter 12, here's what you should be doing. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, it's not, we're not here just to get saved at the very end of our life so we can just have it all now in the flesh. No. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near, which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now, let's put this in context. Just because you're old and you hurt maybe all the time or you struggle with weakness and all the things that old people do. Uh, it doesn't mean, he's not saying that you don't have any pleasure in life. But he's, he's saying comparatively speaking, uh, getting up when you're 70, uh, compared to getting up when you're 20, is, is not the same thing. It hurts. Uh, you can't do what you used to do. So that's what it's talking about there. So you take that in, in the poetic sense. Before the silver cord is snapped, and these are just, uh, euphemisms for dying, or the golden bowl is broken, or the picture is shattered at the fount, at the fountain, you know, the, the, the body, Dying, the wheel broken in the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Right? So there you see another teaching of life after death. The end of the matter then, after all has been heard, a psalmist says, Fear God and keep his commandments. So that's why we're created here, to, to worship God, right? For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So there's a certainly a teaching of the resurrection, of life after death, of, of purpose to life, of, of standing in judgment, right? But let me just, as I close here, the, the thing about this passage is, is it's true, but it's kind of an Old Testament slant on it. It's you're here to you know, obey the commandments and, and serve God and, and, and to get ready for judgment. And that's true. But in Christ, and we have New Testament life, we understand it's a little bit better than that. It's not just about fearing God and keep his commandments. It's about now that we have peace with God and we love God, we enjoy keeping his commandments. And we, we understand that this is a good thing. We're not, we're not living in fear. We're living in love. And so the commandments of Christ, the royal law, you know, in the Old Testament, God treated them like children in the sense that he gave them, he told them every move to make. When you can have sex, how often you have to wash, how you wash, how you plant your uh, seeds in the garden. I mean, every bit of their life was God told them what to do. And it was good for his purposes, but remember, even Peter says, we could hardly bear it. I mean, it, it was rough, because it, it just invaded every aspect of your being. But they did not have the Holy Spirit. They were infants, in a sense. <clears throat> now, what does Paul say? He says, now, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
You've been freed from God telling you every little move to make. And now he just says, go out and live life to the glory of God. Do all for the glory of God. And so we live in a much better situation than, than the saints did in the Old Testament. Where now we, we're, we don't have to be worried about whether we washed right, whether we had sex at the right time of the month, all this stuff. We're, we're, that's not what life's about. We're, we're here to serve Lord and we can do it. According to the principles of God's word, but we do it in freedom. And that's new covenant theology. That's, that's new covenant living. And so this is, this is certainly true, foundational truths there, but we, I think we can see that there's more to be said than just what Solomon understood even in the Old Testament. So anyway, I just kind of threw that in at the end there, uh, to make the sermon go a little longer. But any questions or, or comments before we close?